With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Michael Moynihan, in today for Barry Weiss. This is Honestly. In the past few decades, the Democratic Party has undergone a seismic shift. Yes, I support the defund movement. The power has moved away from the middle. This is the word that's coming from the street. I think it's helpful and important to talk to other white people about racism. I think a lot of people, they don't want to be racist, but they also don't know some of the things that they believe or say are and can be racist. Kitchen table issues like the economy and public safety have been overshadowed by more elitist topics like identity politics, gender ideology, defunding the police, climate change, and the vaguely defined yet rigidly enforced ideology of anti-racism, which sees white supremacy as the force behind every institution in America. But while activists, lobbyists, and pundits were busy reshaping the Democratic Party, ordinary voters including the working class, middle-class families, and ethnic minorities, were simply leaving. Latino voters increasingly rejecting the Democratic Party and embracing the GOP. They're leaving their party in droves because they said, this is unrecognizable, I never signed up for this. What happened to the Democrats in the city, in your opinion? I think they have gone too extreme to the left. I think we need to get back to the basics and focus on making sure the, the cities are safe, making sure we have high-quality education. You go out on the street and you say to people, which party represents the working class of America? Most people, I think, agree, would have said the Democratic Party. Correct. Today you go out on the street and that is not the sentiment. All of which has stranded a large group of Americans on an island, voters in the center of nowhere. Two people who have spent years thinking about how the Democratic Party lost its vision are political analysts Rui Teixeira and John Judas, whose new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, offers up a map to help us understand how liberals lost their way. Teixeira and Judas trace the influence of big-money forces behind what they call the Democrats' shadow party and offer a path forward, away from the radical cultural issues embraced by party elites and back to core economic issues that matter to the working class. We'll be right back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Guys, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Great. Love the book. You guys wrote The Emerging Democratic Majority in 2002. So why don't we start with that book? Why you wrote it, what the premise of it was, and you know how it looks 20 years later. You know, Rui discovered that the uh, white working class was disappearing from the Democratic ranks. And so this was the late 1990s. I discovered this new group was coming into the uh, Democratic Party, the professionals. And we sort of put them together with the assumption that the Democrats wouldn't lose a lot more of the white working class that Rui had written about. We constructed what we thought was a plausible scenario for the Democrats having an advantage over the next decade or two. And it would consist of, again, professionals, and we're not talking about necessarily about doctors, we're talking about nurses, teachers, people with college degrees, women, particularly single women, minorities. As we learned later, too, the young people were coming on, and, and it was an unusual kind of generation in the 2000s. And, and when Obama won in 2008, you know, it was hallelujah, we were prophets, and we figured it all out. But then two years later, in 2010, something happened. The Democrats uh, lost, and they lost big. They lost the House. And we started figuring out that something was the matter. But it really came into focus in 2014 and 2016, because after the 2016 election, it became clear that the Democrats had lost out on its central issue of the economy. It had all this extra baggage, which Trump summed up in uh, the idea of political correctness. And it was sufficient so that uh, the Democrats were at best going to have to alternate power with the uh, Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that was really missed about the emerging Democratic majority, I mean, you know, it was very clear that this group is so big, so important overall and in a lot of key states that there's no way the Democrats can sustain what we call the kind of progressive centrist coalition that was consistent with where the country was evolving and more consistent than the Republicans were, unless they were able to retain the loyalties of a lot of these voters. Then 2016, with Trump's victory, belt on the backs of white working class voters in the Midwest especially, it was very clear that they were not able to maintain the kind of share of the white working class vote they needed to make the political arithmetic of a changing America work out in their favor. But, you know, as we saw after 2016, Democrats summarize their loss as basically being about the reactionary parts of America, the racists, the xenophobes, the left behinds, abandoning them. And it didn't seem to have much to do in their view with questions of economics or other questions related to the sort of way of life that people might be leading. It's all about they're not sort of down with the multicultural, multiracial America that's coming into being, and that's all there is to it. So why even bother with these people, right? They're the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton famously put it. So Yeah, I used to always hear these uh, people talking. They would say, well, you know, the election was all just Trump's racist appeals. But I actually went to the rallies, uh, and the, particularly in 2015. And if you go back, 
Uh, he would begin uh, by talking about, you know, Oreo moving its factory to Mexico, and you shouldn't eat the Oreo cookies because these people were screwing American workers. Of course, you know, Trump was eating Oreos on the plane, <laughs> found out. Uh, he would talk about, the, uh, you know, you talk about bad trade deals. In his platform, he even promised to bring back Glass-Steagall, which is the bill regulating finance. He talked about health insurance. He was going to do a plan that actually would cover all all Americans and wasn't going to be like a, you know, a rat's maze. And if you compare the ads then, his ads were overwhelmingly more policy-oriented than Clinton's. She was really just attacking him as a bad guy, and it didn't work. So essentially, the model was right, that the working class was the necessary demographic for the Democratic Party, but you didn't anticipate that the party that said, you know, we, we are the party of Paul Ryan, we're the party of tax cuts, we're the party of Milton Friedman, would actually start to sound more liberal on economic policy. I mean, I went to many, many Trump rallies myself. I went to a, a union hall in 2016 in Indiana, I think, and it was the Steelworkers Union. And no joke, they had an actual framed photo of Bernie Sanders on the wall. They all told me that he'd been cheated out of the nomination by Hillary Clinton, and they were all throwing their support to Donald Trump. It was a moment where everything became sort of clear to me that things were changing. Yeah, uh, again, that's another way in which Trump was misunderstood. He gets the nomination of the Republican Party a lot because the Republican Party itself was changing and it was becoming more of a working class party and driven by these kinds of voters. And they didn't want to hear the Paul Ryan message over and over again. They would, didn't want to hear just about tax cuts. They didn't want to just hear about, you know, sort of we, we unleash the free market, everything will be great, trust us on this. They were mad uh, and they thought the elites of the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party were selling them out. So Trump's message fell in receptive ears and that shock to the Republican Party system is still with us today because I don't think there's any turning back to the sort of former economic approach of the Republicans. And Trump is the guy who changed the landscape. Again, you know, this gets away from looking at him as just a, an avatar of white supremacy or whatever, as, as frequently is portrayed by some Democrats. And as you guys point out in the book, that it was two parties that believed in the free market, and now it seems to be the opposite. Well, the first thing the Republicans did when they took power last time was to repeal the uh, tax legislation that would have nailed a lot of millionaire and billionaire tax cheaters who happened also to be their biggest donors. So again, it's an odd kind of situation in the parties. Yeah, it's an unstable coalition that the Republicans now have, in some senses, like the Democrats. I mean, they are increasingly dependent on working class votes. And not only white working class votes, we cover this a lot in the book, non-white working class votes. I mean, that is really should have, I think, really shocked Democrats more than it did in 2020 when Hispanic working class voters bailed out en masse from the Democratic Party. And we're still seeing many echoes of that today in the polls and in elections. They can't any longer count on working class voters of any color to be stable in their levels of support for the Democrats. But, you know, that creates a problem for the Republicans because now they have the police those working class voters. They have to figure out a way to keep them in the fold, increase their support among them. And that's difficult. And in a way, you know, their best chance at it is in a presidential election when all these working class voters who weren't tuned into messages and off year elections turn out and they can sort of play the culture war card. They can criticize the Democrats for their brand of economics and they can sort of make the election hinge on that.
Yeah, let's talk about the non-white working class. Um, in 2021, I went down to Star County in Texas, which I believe is the most Hispanic county in America. Now, there's only about 18 or 19,000 voters. They went about 40 points for Hillary Clinton, but they went for Joe Biden by about three or four points. And they're Tejanos, they're Mexican-American, they're people who have been in America for a very long time. They supported Trump on immigration. They were very concerned about, you know, culture war issues that they thought the Democrats had gone too far on. You know, is that ultimately the failing of this type of identity politics that lumps a very disparate group of people together and says, well, they're Latino, they're Hispanic. And there's variations in that. And some of those people are bolting towards the Republican Party and they're not just Cubans. Yeah, well, all that stuff is goofy. I mean, Puerto Ricans vote differently than Cubans than vote differently than Latinos in Texas. So yes, but it is also a fact that except for the Cubans, Minority voters were pretty much Democratic on economic issues. And, you know, the Democrats have started to lose them uh, recently. And it's partly uh, over economics, but it's also over culture issues and over immigration and abortion, things like that. Yeah, and broad brush, you know, the Democrats really made a serious unforced error in treating Hispanics who are basically on their side as sort of melding them into this construct of people of color in the United States who are all oppressed by the fact they are non-whites in a white supremacist society who are the victims of racism and discrimination. And especially since Hispanics are an immigrant population, they really care about immigration and how we should be as friendly and open as possible to immigrants. And we should have a very liberal immigration policy. None of those things were correct. Hispanics think of themselves as Americans. <laughs> they think of themselves as people who want to pursue you know, economic uplift for them, their families, their communities. They want health care. They want safe streets. They want you know, a normal, good, prosperous American life. And for a considerable period, they thought Democrats were basically on their side and they didn't have too many questions about it. The Democrats 15 years ago hadn't veered as far in the direction of what we call cultural radicalism. You know, they were, it was consistent to be in a working, if you were working class Hispanic, to vote for the Democrats as a party of economic uplift and, you know, cultural tolerance, if you could call it that. But that really changes in the last 10 years or so uh, to the point where Democrats are associated with this vector of very culturally liberal, if not radical issues. And Hispanics, they're not so sure the Democrats really have their back in economics now either. If you look at the data from basically what people think about how they fared under Trump as opposed to how they fared under Biden so far, Hispanics give very solid margins to Trump. And that has something to do with the lack of inflation when he was in office. Wages were going up, things were stable, and then there was a whole issue of the lockdown, which really did not sit well with a lot of Hispanic voters uh, who felt we were locked down for too long. These are low-level service workers really hurt by things being closed down for too long. And just a sense, Democrats' priorities were with these almost culturized commitments to things like lockdowns and not necessarily to the welfare of your average working-class Hispanic person. You know, immigration is another example, right? Because a lot of working class Hispanics in certain areas of the country aren't enthusiastic about relatively unrestricted immigration and legal immigrants coming in, stressing resources coming into the country. I listened to a 
focus group of swing Hispanic voters just very recently. And it was extraordinary how negative they were on the immigration situation and how outraged they were about, you know, why can't people do it the right way? I mean, you know, it just they had a real sense of social disorder and of stresses on the system that were affecting them and they didn't all approve of. And again, I mean, this just gets back to the overarching mistake of Democrats is thinking this is a liberal people of color, you know, super friendly to open immigration. Uh, they're basically the, the people who are really more like that are white college educated liberals. They're not they're not the median Hispanic voters. So I think those two things really become confused in Democrats minds frequently. The white educated liberal part of the Democrats voter base thinks what they believe about the world must be what other elements of their base constituencies think. If we think that, then surely Hispanic voters think that. Surely black voters think that, and so on. Yeah, particularly uh, with black voters, too. I mean, when we think of voters as an undifferentiated mass of people of color, there were a series of videos that were going around from city council meetings in Chicago last month about the migrant crisis in Chicago. Every person raising their voice, in often in a very angry way, not a single one of them was white. And that is not something that comports with a lot of this idea of people of color solidarity, that this undifferentiated mass. Um, let's talk a little bit about race in general. You have a chapter on race, and you talk about this kind of cultural radicalism that has infected the Democratic Party, or more particularly the sort of the bien-pensant opinion of Democrats and people in the media. How is that destroying Democrats' chances of having their um, forever majority? Well, again, I think what happened in 2020, demonstrations initially justified, got out of hand. The riots, the arson, the looting, demands like defund the police really started to turn off other constituencies, including black communities that were very worried about public safety. I mean, public safety is a big issue, and it even becomes a bigger issue the poorer you are. So... Again, I think that on issues of crime and racial justice, the Democrats got too far out on a limb and were identified as not being serious about public safety. Rui, is this a media issue? I mean, if so few voters believe this kind of cultural radicalism, if they don't want to defund the police, if they don't know who Ibram X. Kendi is and don't really care to find out, why is this so dominant in so many of the discussions of this issue, particularly the issues surrounding race? Well, one way I think about it is sort of the uh, Democrats and their associated shadow party, this penumbra of media pundits and activists and nonprofits and advocacy groups and foundations, they really control the commanding heights of cultural production. So the dominant narratives that get out there in a lot of the most prominent cultural and media areas of the country are really those that are consistent with this cultural radicalism or very close to it, that the Democrats are now so associated with it. So in other words, these institutions that dominate our cultural discourse to a large extent are not channeling the view of the median voter. They're channeling the view of the educated liberal folks who staff these institutions, who write things, who you know, pontificate, who give out foundation grants, who advocate in Washington. I mean, those people are, generally speaking, white 
college-educated liberals, if not radicals, who have a particular point of view on the world. I mean, all these issues kind of meld together in their minds, issues of race, issues of immigration, issues of crime, issues of uh, the environment and climate change. There's a somewhat maximalist position on all these issues that is very close to where a lot of these people are coming from, and they channel that into the institutions and the outlets that they control. So even if for example, defund the police was never anything that had a purchase among ordinary voters, including ordinary black voters. It suddenly blew up, you know, into something that people actually seem to be taking seriously and debating, despite the fact it was a terrible idea and it's not actually what black people wanted. But it was it was something we people were forced to take seriously and argue about because activists and their associated supporters in the media felt this was something that it was a serious uh, you know, issue. And because, back to your question about race, they were basically buying into this idea that America is fundamentally a white supremacist society. It is shot through with racism in every aspect and every day for every person. So if that's true and the police are the agents of enforcement of white supremacy, then therefore, why wouldn't we want to defund them? I mean, it was it all kind of fits together. You know, if you're if you're in that space, it all fits together into one big sort of paradigm about the world that makes things plausible within that paradigm that are completely implausible outside of it. And in fact, have very little support, again, among ordinary voters, including so-called people of color. Yeah, I think the other factor you have is that if you are organizing a group or if you become the head of the ACLU or whatever, and you want to raise money, you need to have an active base that you're able to appeal to. And the way you appeal to them is not by having political views that will gain a majority in the country, but having views that will stir them up. Again, put this together with social media. And uh, even with newspapers now being dependent on subscribers rather than ads. You know, God knows, you know, that's an advance in some ways, but in other ways, it, it also is a kind of invitation to be strident, to reinforce the views of your subscribers. So I think that on both the right and the left, both the Democrats and the Republicans are having this problem. I mean, so it's an incentive problem in some way, too, uh, with media. Yes. I, I mean, talk a little bit about money, because you don't have a chapter on money. But I've never seen a book in which every institution that is mentioned, you do then tell the reader who funds that institution, whether it's, you know, Open Society on one side or the Koch brothers on another side. Talk a little bit about that and why you found it necessary to include that. Well, I think there's two aspects to it. First, there's the politicians. That's what people ordinarily talk about. And that remains important. The other aspect that we talk about in the book is, again, the role of particularly foundations in funding a lot of these groups that we were talking about. Black Lives Matter started a group in 2015 called the Movement for Black Lives, and they had a very controversial platform. For instance, guaranteed health care and guaranteed income for blacks only. Uh, they wanted an end to public jails. You know, very controversial stance. Well, the Ford Foundation joined forces with the Borealis Philanthropy to launch a six-year fundraising project aimed at getting $100 million for the movement for black lives. So, you know, you get these very controversial positions being reinforced by uh, foundations giving them enormous amounts of money, and that's why we uh, discuss it. I mean, it's a strange thing, though, because it, you understand 
when you know, the Koch Foundation is donating money to a politician or to a group and it's about environmental regulation. You understand when a gun manufa manufacturer does something. The Black Lives Matter thing seemed like corporations buying indulgences. I didn't. I don't understand why so much money went into it. What were they suspecting would happen? That's what I don't get. Well, yeah, I think a lot of it does have that flavor to it. I mean, social justice ideology in that sense is not really particularly threatening to corporate priorities. I mean, it actually fits in well with some ways of social control of your own employees who have to pledge allegiance to this complicated set of dictates. And just a little personal experience here. I mean, I was at the Center for American Progress for 19 years from 2003 to 2022, and CAP had always had relations with foundations. They tried to raise a lot of money from them, particularly the liberal foundations. And one thing I thought was quite extraordinary over time is how the nature of our interactions with those foundations changed and what the program officers did and said and kind of directions in which they tried to steer you and sort of the almost the discourse and the rhetoric that they, they indulged in. I mean, everything over time, and this was even before obviously very much before George Floyd, probably in the you know, mid-teens after Black Lives Matter first started, there was a real increasing salience of what they called structural racism and a variety of buzzwords around that. And you know, hearing the voices of the voiceless and the marginalized, I mean, it became a catechism. And if you were gonna get money from them, you had to evoke that catechism to speak in that language. And it was really quite a marked change from say, you know, when CAP started to where things were in the mid-teens and then, of course, today. It's almost like we used to call it foundation speak. You really had to learn how to speak it. And they took it quite seriously. And there was no arguing with them about any of this stuff. And I think that's just true about, you know, the whole foundation world, the whole nonprofit world, the whole advocacy world in Washington. They really started taking on board a whole set of ideas that everybody felt they needed to sign on to endorse and pledge allegiance to. You know, that by definition, that takes the foundations out of the realm of the ordinary voter and ordinary voters' concerns and more has them almost as agents of promoting a certain ideology and encouraging others to do the same. Do either of you have a sense that this is cresting? You know, there's a, a lot of talk about, you know, this kind of stuff. And if you want to call it wokeness, if you want to call it social justice madness, if you want to call it, you know, whatever name you want to give to it. Do you have a sense that maybe people are pulling back from that in a way and the fear that was associated with it and making sure that you said the right things so you didn't get canceled? Uh, is that going away? Well, my view is that in sort of the broad public discourse, so what normal people talk about, I think it has crested. I think in terms of what politicians are willing to go on record as saying, it's probably crested a bit. I think what's really important, though, it's I think institutionally, I'm not sure it's gone down. Maybe it's stable, but I don't think it's really going anywhere because I think there are too many people and too many institutions, too much money behind it, too much power in the hands of people who are committed to a whole series of these cultural radical positions for us to truly say it's going down in a big way. I mean, I think the main problem is going to be to what extent are the Democrats going to define themselves simply in terms of Republican craziness? And to what extent are they going to find a, a path to winning back a lot of these other voters? And what I, I'd expect in 2024 is not that they're going to call for defund the police, but again, it's going to be all focused on how crazy the Republicans are. What do you think of that tactic? If you did a 
LexisNexis search of MSNBC transcripts, which I have done, uh, of the word fascism in the past four years, you could be clicking through to 10, 15, 20 pages with 50 results a page. It's endless. And, you know, all this democracy dies in darkness business. The argument was that if you stuck with Donald Trump, this is incipient fascism and the American Republic will crumble. Do you think that that's something that most Democrats are going to still push on with as the most effective way of fighting back against Donald Trump? Oh, I don't think there's any question that they're going to stick with that. I mean, look at the 2023 results, right? And 2022 as well. I think they feel that's a great motivator for the high turnout parts of their base. And I don't think they feel comfortable defending Bidenomics or defending, you know, dealing with public safety and immigration issues in any serious way. They just want to highlight Republican extremism because that's what allows them to be victorious. So that's why John and I tend to think that because they'll take this tack and they really won't change much other than that, we are looking at another, you know, highly contested, teeter-totter kind of election where the Democrats might come out on top with this strategy. They might not. But I think that's what they're committed to. And I don't think at this point they see any compelling reason to change their approach. As far as they're concerned, you know, as, as it's sometimes put, there's an anti-MAGA majority in this country and we just have to mobilize it, uh, get our people out to the polls and then we'll win. We don't really have to change anything uh, substantively. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to talk just a little bit about the events of the past month um, and talking about where the left is now. I mean, I went to a protest march here just as a journalist and an observer, and there was a million signs that had to do with left-wing causes that didn't really have much to do with what's happening in the Middle East. And it reminded me of Judith Butler, the UC Berkeley professor who said in 2006 that understanding Hamas, Hezbollah as social movements that are progressive that are on the left, that are part of a global left, is extremely important. Butler said that in 2006. There seems to be, you know, the anti-Semitism of the Charlottesville march was something that dominated news coverage for years, actually. I wouldn't even just say months. Whereas, you know, it seems to be that certain types of anti-Semitism are more dangerous to the modern left 
than others. What do you guys make of the position, and a lot of these people who have said we're very disappointed in the left, is people in the Israeli left saying the American left has lost its mind on this issue. Have you guys thought at all about this? Oh, I've thought too much about it. You know, I read a book uh, <laughs> called Genesis, uh, Truman, American Jews, and the Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict. And, you know, the people supporting Hamas is absolutely nuts. And, you know, in 1991, there was also the Workers' World Party was supporting Saddam as an anti-imperialist. So, you know, this is this has gone on for a long time. And uh, I didn't, I'd never heard that quote from Judith Butler, but that's a Lulu. And, you know, I think there are people who have that view, but they're a minority of the minority. I hope so. I mean, the reason that I think is relevant to your book, because I see so many people talking about the situation in the Middle East through the prism of American race politics, which I think that there's probably not much of an association, and anti-imperialist politics. That's the typical kind of left-wing view. That's why I think there's probably a relevant uh, question. Yeah, no, I, I think it is, actually. Um, if you think of it in the context of all the ways in which what we broadly call this cultural radicalism has taken over big swaths of the Democratic Party and their associated institutions. As I was pointing out before, a lot of issues become kind of melded together into this vast social justice complex of things that everybody has to support, regardless of what their particular issue is. So free Palestine has now, and you know, sort of somewhat extreme view in it even, and putting it through a racial lens has become associated with a lot of the other things that the left stands for, like you know, against structural racism, open immigration, you know, criminal justice reform, you know, against disparate impact on, you know, through the laws and so on. I mean, it's just what I'm trying to say is there's a whole vast complex of things that people sign on to. And I think one interesting thing about this particular event and how it's affecting people is I think there are tons of people on the general center left who've gone along to get along with a lot of the crazy. I mean, they're not cultural radicals, even if they subscribe to newspapers or support institutions or politicians who have a lot of those points of view. They don't want to annoy the kids, so they're just going to go along with it. But I think that what's happened with a certain sector of, of the Democratic liberal constituency is they've looked at what some people on the left have done in terms of how they treated Hamas and how they treated this conflict and the lens through which they're looking for it. And they're basically saying, enough. Enough. This is ridiculous. I can't sign on to this anymore. You know, this is just not at all my point of view on the world. You know, this is a way of drawing a line against some of the illiberalism of a lot of the left today, uh, of its commitment to a lot of things that don't make any sense, of its sort of anti-universalist stance trying to slice and dice Americans into a million different categories and identities. This is stuff that a lot of liberals were probably always at least somewhat uncomfortable with. And I think at least for some of them, this is now, you know, pushing them to trying to draw those lines finally and saying, I can't, I can't sign on to this any longer. At the beginning of the book, you have a list of things. You said there's no one single factor that has driven working class voters from the Democratic Party. And it's quite a long list, but a, a few of the examples you give are Democrats' enthusiasm for immigration of unskilled workers, the support for abortion rights, support for strict gun control, support for an identification with 
the quest for new identities and lifestyles, particularly among the young, Democrats' insistence on eliminating fossil fuels, et cetera, and goes on. I mean, the list included things that Rui and I actually support, but did drive people away. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to make that clear. Aren't these people just Republicans? I mean, you can't change the Democratic Party to go back to get all of these people. I mean, aren't they just sort of lost to the Republican Party at this point because they're too conservative for the Democratic Party? Oh, I think the electorate is, is, is much mushier than the uh, political scientists make out. If you look at, let's say, Gallup's polling on party identification, the number of independents has just been rising to the stratosphere in the last 10 years or so. So it's now, it's, it's like 50 independents, 25 Democrats, and 25 Republicans. Now, you know, they're Republican leaners and whatsoever, but there's a huge number of discontented voters. A lot of those are working class voters. So those, those voters are up for grabs. The Democrats' main problem may be geographic, economic geography. I don't think the Democrats are ever going to win West Virginia back uh, as long as uh, climate change is an issue. But bringing industry to Ohio, if the UAW starts to organize some of these non-union foreign firms like Honda that have plants there, I mean, I think you could see a lot of movement in certain parts of the Midwest. And then the other factor is suburbanites, women. So I think that the Democrats, in that sense, have a chance to win a lot of these people back. I mean, manufacturing jobs aren't coming back, are they? To some extent, they have been coming back. But more high-skilled, right? Yeah, we're not going to see 25% manufacturing or even 18 like they have in Germany or Japan. So when Donald Trump makes those promises in 2016 and 2020, that the, we'll use American steel and American aluminum, and those jobs are all coming back because we're waging a trade war on China. I mean, ultimately, those people are going to be, if they've not already been, very disappointed by those promises. We hope, you know, <laughs> and we hope that there'll be, uh, you know, that uh, Biden is bringing the intel to Columbus, Ohio. I mean, I hope some of that stuff will, uh, will, will resonate. I mean, Trump was talking about infrastructure in 2016, but he could never get a bill, and partly because of the party that he represented and uh, the fact that the, it's still a uh, business conservative party. They didn't want to do it. Biden did it. Let's see if he gets uh, credit for it. Yeah, I mean, it is important, as you're implying, Michael, that most overwhelming majority and really overwhelming majority of working class people aren't in manufacturing. And they, they're not likely to be in the future either. So the issue of the Democrats and the economy cannot be reduced to managing to subsidize some of these plants into existence. It has to do with the overall welfare and economic progress of the working class writ large. And that, I think, is a tougher assignment. You know, it remains to be seen, for example, with the way Democrats are pursuing uh, the clean energy transition, that it's really going to pay off in a big way over time for most working class people. Uh, At this point, actually, the effect on the most obvious, the most prominent thing that most people have to do with energy in their daily lives is on energy bills. And energy bills have not gone down and are not likely to do so to some extent based on the, uh, the, the approach the Democrats are taking. It's energy transition is a much more complex issue. Most people still want fossil fuels to be used. 
they're friendly to natural gas. I mean, there's a lot of aspects to this whole thing that maybe the Democrats don't have precisely the right approach to industrial policy and economic policy as they like to think they do. But if they can deliver, as John's saying, on this, I don't think there's really the cultural barriers are as big as people think to the Democrats being able to win back over some of these voters and get a larger share. Most people are culturally moderate. They're not super conservative. So how do you marginalize the cultural extremists in the party? Well, uh, you know, why, how did the sister soldier thing work for, for Bill Clinton? He drew a line. He, he named names. And I think this is something Democrats are very reluctant to do. So, for example, when Biden in a State of the Union address said, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police, that was fine, except he didn't really like point out any of the places in the Democratic Party where people aren't doing that and say, I disapprove of that. That's not what Democrats are about. Democrats need not just to make gestures toward the center. They have to really mean it and they have to emphasize it and actually make it part of their their brand, their persona, their offer to voters. And that's what Biden and Democrats by and large have not been willing to do. So if you want to disidentify the Democrats with cultural radicalism, you have to do it aggressively. And as I put it in a recent piece I wrote, the progressive left is a paper tiger. They're threatening that if you move to the center on any of these issues, the gazillions of young people who are controlled by liberal organizations or listen to them or whatever won't turn out or they'll, they'll vote for it. I, I think that's baloney. Let me ask you one final question. If a young person comes to you, a young Democrat, young liberal, and says, America is a racist white supremacist country, and we have to do radical things to absolve ourselves from our past sins. How would you respond to that? I would respond that it's a much more complicated uh, situation than that. Uh, America has a lot of virtues. I mean, if you go to Europe, they've had enormous problems trying to assimilate a Turkish minority, and it took them you know, 40 years, 50 years after World War II, even to allow people to become, uh, uh, give them a path to citizenship. So we've had, on that issue, we've, we've done a lot. I mean, it's always been a battle, and it will continue to be a battle. Race, I mean, that's, a, again, that's, we fought a civil war. 750,000 people died over uh, the, during the Civil War. We had enormous battles during the 50s and 60s. We're way beyond uh, where we were then. We had a black president for two terms. So again, you know, politics always is a struggle like that. And America is unusual for our ability to combine all these different people. And I guess the last thing I would say was these terms like integration and assimilation, which have become dirty words for the cultural radicals. That's exactly what we should be trying to do. Colorblind? Well, that shouldn't be used to say we are colorblind. We, we're not. I mean, people still discriminate on race, but the goal should be that that shouldn't be a defining part of how we see people. It shouldn't be a defining thing that people are come from Mexico or wherever. And, uh, you know, the country's at virtue at times. It's been to move beyond that, but it's, it's always been a struggle. So that's my, that's my two bits on the issue. Yeah, I mean, I just think that frequently people like that will 
essentially be saying, you know, America hasn't made any progress on the race issue, including in the last 60, 70, it's just utterly preposterous. Every bit of empirical data we have suggests that it is in fact completely ridiculous. It also is important to point out that the fundamental American ideals of universalism, fairness, tolerance, anti-discrimination, these are beautiful things. America is all about giving everyone an equal break and, and not discriminating against people. And that animates a lot of the good things that have happened in our history. And it's still what people believe. This is what most people who are non-white believe. This is what ordinary voters believe. And this has always been the strength of America, that people are committed to those kinds of universalist ideas. And we don't reduce everything to a question of race or a question of privilege. And I would say to my young democratic friend, um, what you say is neither empirically accurate nor is it likely to be effective politically. So please change your mind. Rui, John, where have all the Democrats gone? I hope you find them. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you liked this conversation, if there were parts that challenged you, angered you, or maybe something was said that made you change your mind, that's all great. Share with your friends and family and use it to provoke conversations of your own. And if you want to support Honestly, you can do that at thefp.com and become a subscriber. I'm Michael Moynihan. You can usually find me at the Fifth Column Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.